Joseph Goldstein has a really nice image that can help us understand um, the arising of samadhi or the coming together, you know, this more wild, dispersed or scattered mind coming together when the supporting conditions are there. And he likens it to initially our ordinary mind is an upside-down bowl. If you put a marble or pearl at the top of the bowl, it might be there at the center for an instant before it rolled off one side or the other. And then at some point when these mental factors come together in balance, then it's as if the bowl is inverted right side up. And so even though disturbances might arise and the marble might move, now its tendency is to come back to center naturally. It's in a way built into that mind. Is That steadiness is built in, like to come back to a steadiness of attention. So there might be a loud sound in the room or memory might arise or some other thing, pain might arise in the body. There may be a little flutter of thinking, even reactivity. But there's something drawing the mind, the momentum of samadhi is drawing drawing the mind back to balance, to steadiness. And so that's a very interesting tipping point or flipping to begin to notice because, you know, we might find a moment of presence in our daily life, but then, you know, the mind gets drawn, gets caught up, and it can be minutes, hours before the mind comes back to that state of balance. So this is useful. The collectedness of mind is never far away. It's not like when our mind is really wild. It's not like samadhi is hours away or miles away because it's just out of balance. So the correction, you know, it's, I don't know what the right image is, but it's really important not to believe that samadhi is far away. But the kind of samadhi, like the mind coming in balance, it, it may be like very quickly come, come back but you could very quickly lose it. So one of the trainings we do, as I mentioned last week, is with these five factors so that we really understand it and we understand how that, like in terms of cause and effect, how samadhi comes together and how it can be strengthened. So there's a flip and then the mind is just more resilient. There's just less and less what the mind can do or what can arise that throws the mind off. Some people talk about this after a good retreat where they've had a lot of good sits where the mind settled down and the mind got to know this place of collectedness, of samadhi, and then the mind sort of knows it and it intuitively knows how to support it, how to trust it. And then it's like we can go for a while before we lose it, weeks even, where it's just more resilient. Things that would normally really cause us to react and spin, the mind has some immunity. Or it may get briefly disturbed, but then it comes back to the peace. It's like a orbit. The mind orbits around peace. It keeps wanting to come back to that stillness, that peace. 
And you probably noticed with the five factors, and if you didn't get a handout, they're up here. It's just a sheet to help you remember these five jhanic factors. And Roger, uh, who's not here tonight, scanned a chapter from Bhante Gunaratana's book that has some more information about this process. But you probably noticed with the five factors, they go from gross to more subtle. So the mental factor of connecting that initial application of the mind that's a, in, in sort of meditation sense, it's a pretty gross activity where I'm, in a sense, somebody, or there is this movement of the mind applying itself to the object, connecting to the object. And then, slightly more subtle, the intention to sustain, to not forget. And the third is more of a natural arising of joy, so just the recognition of that stability or that relative seclusion. Because of the connecting and sustaining, the mind now is beginning to be secluded from greed, anger, and delusion because connecting and sustaining with the breath or with whatever object, it doesn't matter, then that activity of connecting and sustaining secludes the mind from the forces of greed and aversion that are, of course, deeply habituated or programmed into the part of the conditioning of the mind. So now there's some seclusion, and that distance, that relative distance from the forces of greed and aversion create a sense of joy. I mean, there's, there's a, a feeling of... It's like... Uh, the way I describe it, and I think it's it's probably different for different people, but this may be useful for you. Um, but as the mind connects and sustains with the way it is, the breath is just sort of a, an example or a stand-in for the way it is, right? It's nature. So the mind is connecting and sustaining with nature, in this case the breath, let's say, and retreating from the mental activity that involves greed and aversion and distraction and denial and other unwholesome tendencies of mind, then that seclusion means life, the life of Dhamma, the way it is, starts revealing itself as free movement. Isn't that what joy is anyway? Things are just moving, expressing a natural movement. And you literally start to see this in whatever the mind is paying attention to. Both the object reveals this, and the mind that's knowing the object reveals this too. A free, more and more of a free, unrestricted movement. So the mind that's knowing the breath is seen as a free, unrestricted movement, and the breath is seen more and more as a free, unrestricted movement. And the mind interprets that as joy or rapture. It's, a, it's an energizing, enlivening experience. So this kind of happiness is more of a energetic kind of happiness. And remember in the guide it said, I said you don't need to, don't go looking for joy. Let whatever it is present itself because your idea of joy may not actually be what joy is. So you have to have a sense of what's moving, what's enlivening, and just ask, is this piti, is this joy? Is this joyful interest? 
Is this the uh, expression of joyful interest, steadiness, the increasing steadiness of mind in the present moment? So just ask in an innocent, honest way and see if some intuitive answer, yeah, yeah, that's what this is, or no, that's, this is not, this is something, this is indigestion or, <laughs> or something else, you know, the effects of green tea or something. And then that presence of the unrestricted movement, what we call pity or joy, then it, it, the mind trusts it. It, it. It's like it feels alive, and that enlivened state makes, it, makes this other part of the mind happy or ignites or uh, supports the arising of sukha, of happiness. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. This moment is fine. So that's what that hap- that's a nice definition of happiness. We're happy when we're not trying to make the moment different than what it is. That's what that's how that's an operational definition of happiness. I don't need things to be other than they are. And an operational definition of unhappiness is I want things to be different than they are. So when that manifests in our mind, the mind not needing wanting things to be other than they are, then that it feels like the mind's content, it's happy, it's at ease with the way it is. And that's something that mind can see in itself. Oh, this is ease, this is sukha, this is happiness. And then the more the mind is content with the way it is, the more what is revealed, like the ground of the mind or the nature of the mind, is still. It's equanimous, it's peaceful, it's like open space big open space that doesn't have a problem with anything. So that nature of the mind comes through as a factor that's there to be recognized, skillfully recognized. Because the more the mind recognizes that, the more, and and also the sukha, the fourth factor, the more it realizes that the connecting and sustaining aren't necessary, don't need to be emphasized. So the mind begins to trust more of the contentedness and one-pointedness. Remember, one-pointedness is, the, the point is that, don't think of this only in terms of like a focused attention and exclusive attention. The one point is this. And the interesting thing about the experience of stillness or peace is it doesn't have to be associated with an exclusive object of awareness. That's just a simplistic or superficial idea. Stillness, peace, calm is independent, can be independent of whether the mind is seeing many objects or one object, because it's, an, it's a factor or a quality of the mind itself. So it's just useful to understand the five jhanic factors in this way. Now I want to share one more thing before we break in small groups, but I think I'll take a few comments or questions about the five jhanic factors. And this is something with your own understanding from your practice you might want to share in your small groups as you 
some of you hopefully have investigated in your sits these five jhanic factors just this last week, but also just generally over the course of your practice. But any questions about these five jhanic factors? So just one little piece of information. When they're in balance, then by definition, then the hindrances are distant. They're not dominating or affecting the quality of the mind. They've retreated. So this retreating sometimes is called access concentration. So in order to do the work of insight, ideally, the mind would have some distance from the hindrances because it's hard to see the hindrances like greed, the arising of greed, when the mind is already caught up in one of the hindrances, like it's dull or it's restless or it has a lot of doubt or it's aversive or it's greedy. Well, it's not so easy to see the arising of a hindrance when the mind is already colored by one of the hindrances. So when the mind has retreated because the five jhanic factors are in balance, then when a hindrance arises, the mind sees it for what it is. It's impersonal. It's something that comes and goes. And when there's any identification with it whatsoever, there's suffering. It's tight. So thoughts about the jhanic factors or questions that come to mind before we move on? Yeah, Gail. So, that does not, you know, this line of followers, some were really into fascination, some really didn't teach it, some didn't teach it. So, coming from the same teacher, I, the Thai Forest Commission has all these systems. Yeah. Um, that's exactly where I'm going. There's two ways to do the, I, I would say that everyone who knows what they're doing is teaching concentration. But there are two ways to develop concentration. And also you could say there are two ways to uh, support the development of this path of awakening. And just, in a, uh, and I'll kind of dig in for the next 15, 20 minutes and then we'll break into small groups. But just to be simplistic, one way is the path of investigation. And the other way is a path of deepening concentration. So basically, it's not concentration for its own sake. It, it's also a path of insight or investigation. But the understanding or the approach is, let's make the mind a very, very refined instrument, a very sensitive instrument. So when I pick up the activity of Vipassana investigation, the investigation will go much better because the instrument is really refined. So that's one approach. That's, in a way, I guess if when you look at the suttas, that's the way the Buddha emphasized more than the other way. And the other way also develops samadhi. You can't get anywhere without samadhi, but the approach is different. They tend to, both will emphasize ethical conduct a lot because there's no development of either way without just stabilizing that basic part of our life where we're living our life with a lot of integrity. We're not stealing. We're not intentionally harming. We don't have a lot of regrets because we're not making a lot of intentional mistakes. And when we do make mistakes, we practice forgiveness and starting over. 
So we work on sila. And then it's just, a, part of it is just a matter of the mind's personality and what it's interested in. And part of it is a matter of the teachers that you have available to you. And part of it is, uh, is sort of uh, what comes up. Like if our mind is such that it can easily develop deep concentration, we have the suitable conditions for the development of deep concentration, why wouldn't we? It would be a very appropriate path. But not everybody has those supporting conditions. One of the things Ajahn Mahabua, one of the disciples of Ajahn Man, the person that Gail mentioned, you know, he has this great line. He says, samadhi develops wisdom, and wisdom develops samadhi. So some people develop samadhi so that they can de- develop wisdom, and other people have to develop a lot of wisdom in order to develop samadhi so they can develop more wisdom. So most people living lay lives, lay lives, we need to develop a lot of wisdom to develop samadhi. So the samadhi that we're getting is partly due to the mind retreating to whatever degree our minds can retreat in our hour a day that we sit or the one or two nine-day retreats that we get in every year or whatever it might be for us. But in the meantime, we're developing this vipassana, this investigation. So we're using the mind like the steadiness comes from right view, the coming back to right view over and over and over again. Right view basically is seeing the arising phenomena as impermanent, limited or unsatisfactory, and not self. So if we can sustain that right view with whatever objects are arising, then the mind can have profound states of steadiness, of samadhi. Not to the degree of absorption, but when the mind is in a deep state of absorption, there is no investigation. This is one of the ways you can tell that you're in a deep state of samadhi, is investigation is suppressed. So the ideal place is to have enough samadhi, but investigation can continue. But one of the ways to do that is to develop even deeper states of samadhi, of absorption. And then as, you, as that deep state of samadhi falls away, then investigation can arise. And so there's this seamless arising of a pasana practice as the samadhi state ceases. And then the mind, because of the stillness of that deeper state of absorption, the mind is profoundly sensitive. So it's going to notice the beginning of the arising of the defilements of greed and aversion, those conditioned tendencies of our mind that go very deep, deep habits. It's going to notice them in much more subtle ways because the mind is more sensitive. It's more still. It's more peaceful. So if you have a perfectly white cloth, you know, and there's just a little bit of grit on it, it's going to stand out. But if the cloth is pretty rough and dirty, one more little spot of dirt is not necessarily going to stand out. So this is the advantage of, to whatever degree, we need steadiness. We can develop steadiness by secluding the mind from what disturbs it. 
So we pick up an object. I'm going to be a mindful of the breath devotee. And I'm going to take that factor of mind, that initial application of mind. That is just something the mind knows how to do. But we've got to find that tendency or that quality of mind. We have to tease it out so we see. The mind knows how to do that. It knows how to connect. And when it connects in that way, you saw maybe in the handout, then um, sleepiness and dullness disappears because it's the opposite of dullness. Finding that part of the mind that's willing to apply itself to the moment to connect. And then the sustaining removes doubt from the mind because doubt requires a sort of mental cognitive spinning, but when the mind is sustaining its connection with dhamma the way it is, the breath as it actually is, then there's no space in the mind for doubt. So one by one, these factors remove, push out, suppress the hindrances so that when they come into balance, the hindrances are at bay. They're distant from the mind, and the mind is steady. So with, uh, you know, the way that I and a lot of us give uh, instructions, it's, it's really a little bit of both. You know, I really find that for some people, who knows what percentage, it's really nice for there to be an anchor so that the mind is developing a friendship with the breath, for example, or the body, or the loving-kindness phrases, or some activity so that the mind with this friendship, learning to like this object of experience, the mind knows how to gather itself to show up in a wholehearted way. That means that's the two factors, first two factors of initially connecting and then sustaining. So that showing up, being present with, willing to put down the rest of the world of this and that, good and bad, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, is this a good sit or a bad sit? All of that endless speculation doesn't really fit in the mind that's willing to apply itself to the object and sustain its awareness with the object. But even when we're doing Vipassana practice, more of an investigative practice, we need the same two factors of connecting and sustaining. So the only difference is with the Vipassana practice, the real anchor, in a sense, what the mind is trying not to forget is right view. It's just nature being known, just causes and conditions being known, empty phenomena rolling on. That sustaining that view is, in a sense, the samadhi object, sustaining right view. Because as soon as I start taking the objects like from a Vipassana point of view, as soon as I start taking the objects of my experience personally, then I'm going to have a personal opinion. I'm going to want to control or fix. But see, Vipassana investigation can't do its job when greed or aversion or some other quality of mind is causing the mind to get involved. How can I really see the underlying nature of what's arising in my experience if my mind is involved in it? Same with the scientists. Like 
when scientists do experiments, you know, they set it up, they set up the protocol, and then they stand back and they observe. You know, and ideally, their observation isn't affecting what they're seeing, right? Otherwise, they can't trust what they're seeing. And it's exactly the same thing as we're watching the mind. We have to cultivate right view, which is a, a disengaged, uh, non-attached, non-interfering awareness of what's coming and going in the field of experience. So the samadhi is the same in the sense that the mind has to be steady. But now it's steady with changing objects of experience. But in a more formal samatha practice or absorption concentration practice where that is being emphasized, the samadhi arises because the mind has secluded itself from objects of experience that disturb it or that push it around. So you have like uh, going home, you have two ways, you know, what you do after this class tonight, you have two ways you could steady yourself. You could, you know, go home, shut all the lights off, go to some uncluttered place in your room, you know, uh, find, give your mind something to do so you're not thinking about your to-do list and not worrying about the future or what you did in the past. And you get secluded. You know, for some of you, it might be knitting. You know, you just absorb into the activity of knitting. Other people, maybe you chant, or some people might follow their breath, or some people might take a warm bath with really pleasant scents and play some peaceful music. And all of those sense experiences, the mind gathers itself around, and it's distant now from sense experiences that agitate it, that push it around, disturb the mind. So that's a samatha practice. That's you're emphasizing samadhi that arises because the mind is secluding itself. So you see that kind of samadhi is vulnerable to conditions changing. Because it has arisen because the conditions are nice or good. So that's a little bit like when I concentrate on my breath, and then after a while, depending on how my mind's doing, there's a, a feeling of rapture, and then as I'm watching my breath, I'm aware of the rapture, and after a while of that, I notice the stillness, and then eventually that's my object of awareness. And then I, I hold that like a dear friend. And then my mind can feel very distant from all of the ordinary concerns of my life. And when that finishes, even when I'm back kind of interacting, it's like those concerns still feel a little distant for a while. It's really interesting how that is. And it's worthwhile, and like I mentioned last week, anybody who's really interested in the practice it's worthwhile experimenting and developing the skill of seclusion. So even if you're more of a pasana kind of practitioner, you still want to understand the skill of seclusion. And if you're a seclusion junkie and you really like absorption and you're really interested in developing the skill of absorption, of deeply the mind deeply retreating from sense experience, and basically 
taking up the inner beauty of the mind as the meditation object. So as that stillness of mind, peace of mind, space of mind, that becomes the object to, and when that, that awareness of that is deep and strong and continuous, then the mind has a profound break from ordinary consciousness where I'm seeing and hearing and thinking and touching and having reactions, conditioned reactions to all those sense experiences that are making, you know, impinging the sensitivity of the mind, the heart. And we have some freedom from all that. So, but to do that, to develop that, we need a lot of investigation because basically you're developing vipassana because you're noticing what is in the way of the mind retreating. Right? So most people can't naturally seclude their mind from sense experiences. So there's a lot of wisdom work, a lot of investigation to see like, why isn't the mind connecting and sustaining with the breath? Where did it go? How did that happen? What did the mind see that made it choose to let go of its attention to the breath and do this other thing, pay attention to this other thing? So we have to resolve to notice that. So the next time that trigger arises, and you're sort of with the in-breath, with the in-breath, and the trigger arises, oh, this is how that happened. But that's just a trigger. That's just something being known. The mind doesn't need to choose to follow that. It can say, okay, I see you, and now here, honey, breath coming in, coming in, coming in, breath going out, going out, going out. So that's why Ajahn Mahabua says that wisdom develops samadhi, and samadhi develops wisdom. So we need both, and it's really important that we understand both, and probably for the great majority of us, in our basic daily sit, we want elements of both. And in some days, We'll emphasize more of the seclusion because that's what the mind needs. Ideally, we'd have enough intuition to know that's what the mind needs. But to do that seclusion, we need to have some skill. So it might be good for six months just to do more of a seclusion kind of practice. So you really, then when you need it, you get it. And then same thing with Vipassana, the sort of more in the direction of open attention, where you're not secluding yourself from sense experiences in order to get calm, you're relying on right view to support the steadiness of attention. The mind not being confused by what it sees, what it thinks, what it feels in the body, because it knows it's just empty phenomena rolling on, just the natural arising of causes and conditions, impersonal, changing, and whenever the mind identifies, stressful, unsatisfactory. When the mind leaves it alone, not a problem. So I want to leave it here so we have plenty of time in the small groups as we end our course tonight. So again, just some things you might bring to mind in your sharings. So any thoughts about the jhanic factors that I've been talking about, including that you don't get them, don't know what they are, why the mind might be resistant, think the whole thing is stupid, because or... The other thing that gets triggered with these kinds of conversations is a lot of uh, evaluation and judgment of our practice or comparing mind, thinking other people are further along or not as far along. 
there's a lot of energy, uh, kind of self-energy around samadhi. Because it's not that different than uh, uh, like how we might judge each other by how in shape our body is, how sort of stereotypically attractive we are, how much gold we have adorning our body, or how much wealth, you know, the kind of car that we have. So in spiritual circles, Buddhist spiritual circles, Samadhi is a thing we use to judge ourselves and others with. So just be on the lookout. And that's something to share, like revealing our own tendency to judge ourselves and others in this way. Or to be embarrassed by our calm or our peace because we feel like other people may be envious or something like that. So it's, it's a, there's often a little tension in this in Buddhist communities around this issue. And then the other two things I thought you might want to bring up in small groups, just your own experience of seclusion, both in sort of ordinary ways, so not even in a meditative context, but just ways you've experienced the mind being secluded from sense experience. If Richard Bonk were here tonight, he could talk about using the flotation tank, which he's a real pro at. But other people have had their own sort of ways of supporting the seclusion of the mind. And then the other really important thing that people might want to bring up is how you've gotten a lot of steadiness through wisdom, not through seclusion. So you're right there in the middle of life happening, all the messiness, but the mind isn't being pushed around. So what was happening in those moments that allowed the mind to be really steady, peaceful, clear, but not having to manipulate or control the conditions that were being known, not having to retreat from the conditions that were being known, because that would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, not to have to go to a cave in order to be calm, or not to have to be in your sit, your daily sit, in order to be calm, but to be able to find it out in the world. 